Make sure you check out our online store where we work with our graphic designer to create stunning garment and product designs that feature a wide variety of aircraft types such as British fighters, World War II aircraft, American bombers, Russian fighters and much more. You can pick your favourite designs and personalise any items within our Redbubble store that range from clothing right the way through to stationery. All of our designs feature our logo so you can show your support for the channel while getting a quality product. You can head to our website aircrewinterview.tv and click store or go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash AC interview. Thank you and enjoy. So Roger, when did you first become interested in aviation? Well, I suppose it was during World War II because I was born just before the war and I saw an awful lot of the stuff that went on and of course my hero as a young boy with the Battle of Britain people. And so then I took an interest in model aircraft when I was about 10 and then that developed. And then of course there was only one way for me to go and that was in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. So I applied for the Air Force when I was about 16 and uh, I was accepted and taken in on what was called the Piston Provost Vampire Course. Um, that lasted for about 18 months. We did nine months on the Piston Provost. Uh, a little bit about the Piston Provost. It was a two-seat, quite a big aeroplane for yeah. somebody who'd never flown anything before. Um, it had a 550 horsepower radial engine. Wow. So it was quite a beast. Yeah. You started it with a cartridge and it made a great bang and then the whole thing burst into life. Um, and not having flown anything at all before, it was a little bit of a hand, handful. Uh, it took me 10 hours dual before I went first solo in the aeroplane. And then we carried on and did about 120 hours in the Piston Provost before we moved on to the Vampire. Now the Vampire was one of the first jet aircraft to fly and it was a very basic aeroplane. Uh, we had no ejector seats, we had two sorts of Vampire, one was the T-11 which was a two-seat side-by-side aeroplane. That was eventually fitted with ejector seats but not while I flew it and uh, you flew the two-seater and your instructor gave you things to, to do, to practice and then you went off in the single seat which again had no ejector seat very basic um, wasn't very powerful, it carried, had a Goblin engine, de Havilland Goblin mm -hmm. de Havilland made their own engines in those days um, and, and that aircraft well it had a top speed of about 350 so but it had completely manual controls. And there, were there was no navigational kit or anything like that. It's a really basic aeroplane. Um, it landed quite slowly at about 85 knots. Oh. <laughs> um, and then towards the end of that course, uh, we, did, we had done probably 110 hours on the Vampire, and then you got your wings. And that, right. was, that was the big moment, you know, for me that was a, a really important part of my life. So Roger, what was the Vampire like to fly? How did it handle? Uh, it had no power controls, so it was um, reasonably heavy on the controls. Um, it didn't have a lot of power. If you took it up quite high and you 
put it into a dive, it would actually go out of control wow. at about 0.78 times, this, that's 0.78 of the speed of sound, Mark number 0.78, that was its limiting Mark number. And when we flew this, I had an instructor who was a, a fairly aggressive sort of chap, and he said to me one day, I want you to go up to 35,000 feet, put it into a dive, and just keep diving at full throttle and see what happens. See, I always did what you were told, mm -hmm. certainly in those days. And um, so I did that. And at about 0.8 of the speed of sound, this thing just went completely out of control. I mean, the nose pitched down, and nothing I could do changed it. Nose pitched down, started rolling like that, and shaking and Christ. buffeting and all that. So I pulled the throttle back, put the speed brakes out, and nothing, still couldn't do anything. But as you come down from the high level into the thicker air, the mark number reduces, decreases, right. yeah. and the airspeed indicator gets faster. That's, mm. that's how it works. When you reach the mark number where it comes, the, the, the waves, oh. mech waves, are not disturbing the controls, then you get control back. And so at about 15,000 feet, I suppose, I was able to control it and bring it back. And that was, you know, my first experience of flying an aeroplane at high mark numbers. I liked the Vampire, it really was nice. It was very, uh, at, at lower speeds, it was, it was very easy to fly. It landed quite slowly at about 85 knots. Um, and um, the two-seater was okay. Um, yeah, nice aeroplane, nice. So how many hours did you get on Vampire before you moved on to Hunter? 110 was the course uh, number. That was a, uh, of that, I suppose about half of it would be dual with an instructor and the other half would be solo. So Roger, then you got posted to Hunters. How did this come about? Well, there were a number of people who were posted to the fighter world and the Hunter was the main air defense weapon that we had at the time, a day fighter. And so before you could go off to a squadron, you had to learn how to use the airplane as a weapon. When we got our wings, we were taught to fly. That was as a pilot, you know, just flying the airplane. But when you went to the operational conversion unit, the Hunter operational conversion unit at Chibna, they taught you how to fire the guns, do a battle formation, that kind of thing, and make you ready to go onto a squadron and that took about two months. Wow. The problem with the Hunter one was that it did, you couldn't fire the guns. Well you could but if you fired the guns the engine stopped and that was not good. So <laughs> That's not good at all. <laughs> it took them a little while to sort that out and whilst they were sorting that out we just flew the Vampire to do our gunnery training air to air, air to ground all that sort of thing, battle formations, things you didn't do in ordinary training, um, but you need to do for operational use. And so the Hunter, we only flew the Hunter for about 16 hours. Wow. The other problem with the Hunter was it was very short range. All of my trips, I looked in my logbook uh, when I knew I was gonna talk to you, and they're all of about 30, 35 minutes. Wow, was that no, no time at wow. all, but it would get from ground level to 40,000 feet in five minutes, six minutes. Very, very fast. So what were your first thoughts when you saw the Hunter up close? Well, 
Yeah, you've got to look at it. It's a, just a lovely aeroplane. It's yes, a beautiful-looking aeroplane. It's a little bit uh, intimidating because it's quite a bit. You put that next to a vampire, and the vampire looks like a toy. <laughs> Like a toy aeroplane. It does indeed. And this yeah. thing you had to climb into it. And we also knew that it had this very high power weight ratio. It would, it would go very quickly, very quickly. It would accelerate at a huge rate down the runway. So, yeah, Roger, talk us through your first flight in the Hunter. What was that like? Ah, right. Well, great excitement and um, quite nervous. And I was taken out to the aeroplane by one of the senior flying officers. He must have been almost 23 years old. You know, he's a very, very experienced man. <laughs> Put me in the cockpit and we switched it all on. We fired up the engine, which had a cartridge start. And then he switched on the power controls, tapped me on the head and said, don't break it. And off I went. And the thing, the first impression you got when you opened the throttle and moved forward was the undercarriage, uh, very long stalky legs on yes. the undercarriage. And it was very bumpy because the, the, um, the actual tires had something like 180 pounds per square inch pressure in them. Wow. So it really, every bump you felt it. Anyway, you taxied out to the end of the runway, which wasn't very long at Chivna, 2,000 yards, and um, line up and they tell you it's time to go. And you open the throttle, and when you open the throttle, my God, this thing set off. So it was a big difference it, from the vampire. You if you had the brakes on, you went to full power, it would move. It, it, the brakes couldn't hold it. Wow. It was, it was quite powerful. And so you'd release the brakes and this thing would set off down there. And you thought, well, you were probably about 100 yards behind the aeroplane. At least you felt that way. And the other thing was that when you lifted it off the ground at about 150 knots was the sort of speed you'd get off the ground. Um, there's power controls for the ailerons. And if you look at the ailerons, they're big, great big slant and they're powered by hydraulic hydraulic uh, turbo hydro boosters they're called and when you first moved the stick it was very sensitive and in fact it was quite amusing because all the other students would come out of the crew room and watch people do their first solo takeoff because as soon as they got off the ground they would go <laughs> off into the distance because they were over controlling yeah. on the things and then and of course the speed just came whizzing up and if you weren't quick with the undercarriage getting it up you were exceeding the undercarriage speed and the undercarriage speed above which you shall not go was 250 knots so you reach 250 knots almost off the end of the runway and then wow. you put that up and then the climb speed was 420 knots. Well, that was something like a hundred mile, hundred knots faster than you'd ever been in your life before. That's so, a huge difference. And, and you'd be at about a thousand feet or so as you speed winding up very quickly. And when you got to 420 knots, you bring the stick back to hold that speed and the aircraft would be going up at that angle really fast and as I say you get to 40,000 feet in about five and a half six minutes something wow. like that that's and quick very, quick. That's and very quick and then when you leveled off you'd be doing about 0.9 of the speed of sound um, 
and you travel. back and then you, could, you, you don't use much fuel up there by comparison. So we could fly around and do all sorts of various maneuvers and mm -hmm. it was <laughs> and then come home quickly because we had bingo lights which came on <laughs> which told you you were low on fuel yeah and then you'd have to come straight back down and land and of course when you landed it you were coming down the final approach at 150 knots to right. slowing it down a bit to about 140 uh, for the landing but that was something like 40 knots faster than you'd ever landed before. A big difference. A bit different. Yeah. And when you put it on the ground, and it went down with a bit of a bang because of these stiff undercarriages and the high pressure tyres, and your nose came down and you put the brakes on, you God, am I going to stop <laughs> in time? And you did. And did so you have to shoot in the back? No shoot. No shoot. Not right. on the Mark 1. Right. The later Marks, the Mark 9 and the two-seaters, which came in much later, they had shoots. So Roger, what kind of uh, flying training would you start doing on the Hunter? Most of it was air-to-air -air flying, where we actually fired, this is the Vampire at Chivna, we, we fired our cannons at flags, which were towed by the Meteor that you saw earlier on. And they would, the, the flag would be about 800 yards behind the Meteor, and you'd be out over the sea. Right. And you'd have to always turn from the land to away from into yeah. out to sea otherwise you'd be spraying ilfracombe with cannon <laughs> you don't <shells>. want that <laughs> that was not approved not approved <laughs> at all no, it's not a good idea i did actually once do an attack from the wrong direction by mistake and i was fined 10 shillings for doing that because that was, that's how it worked you had a, yeah, you got a fine system anyway uh, but we we did yeah, and and when you fired the guns the cannon shells, when they went through this flag, which was made of some kind of uh, uh, material, the, the, the head of the bullet, head of the shell, was dipped in paint, different colours. So you'd have red, blue, different colours. So if you had four aeroplanes shooting at the flag, you'd know one guy was had red and one guy had blue. And when you went took the flag back to Chivna, you lay the flag out and they say it was firing red and you go around and you just check all the red holes and you'd see whether you'd hit it or not mm -hmm. and how many shells you'd fired and how many had hit was the average that, that was you know considered reasonable mm -hmm. and in the early days we didn't hit the flag very well because the radar ranging didn't work either, so the gun oh, sight right. didn't work quite as well as it might have done. It got much better, and later on we were able to get scores of up around 60 or 70 percent early on. We also did battle formation, which is where you maneuver the aircraft around, usually at high level, also at low level, but mostly high level, and you attack each other, and instead of using shooting each other with guns, you actually uh, press the button for a cine camera and the cine camera would take the picture of what you could see through oh, the gun okay. sight yeah. so you'd see the other aircraft turning and you'd have your gun sight on that aircraft and you'd press the button and if you were at the right range and if you had the little spot in the right place that was considered a kill right so you 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 won that particular battle so we did that all the time um, low level navigation 
There's not a lot in mind. Nowadays, the lads flying typhoons and things, they've got all kinds of modern kit. They've got inertial navigators, they've got radars, they've got all sorts of stuff. We had nothing at all. We had a stopwatch and a map and a compass. And you just flew a course, pressed the stopwatch. We were always flew, funnily enough, the hunter was always flown at sometimes uh, some amount of miles per minute. Six miles per minute uh, yeah. was is 360 knots. Mm -hmm. We normally flew at seven miles a minute, which was 420 knots. So low level, 420 knots, everybody flew the Hunter at 420 knots. So you'd fly around usually Wales. They weren't always appreciative of our low flying, <laughs> I must admit. But we flew around Wales and we navigated and we practiced going from one place to the other. Little villages we try and find. Sometimes we would attack them uh, with our cameras, uh, not with our, yeah. And, um, then you'd be in serious trouble if you did actually yeah. attack them. <laughs> <laughs> so, th so that was most of the training we did and that prepared us for uh, fighter squadron work when we were posted out. So what was your first fighter squadron? And you also flew in Germany with the Hunter, didn't you? Yes, they sent me out to RAF Germany. It was called Second Tactical Air Force then. And at a place called Jever, North Jever, Germany, yep. near Wilmshaven. Yep. A nice place, I liked it there. And I was posted to 93 Squadron, which was a Hunter squadron. And they had the Mark IV Hunter, um, which was very similar to the Mark I. Had the same engine. It just had a bit more fuel, and uh, the guns could—you could fire the guns. That was good, and uh, you could fire rockets from it as well. That sort of thing. But that was 93 Squadron. Brilliant. Uh, yeah. So, what was it like flying in Germany, and how did it compare to flying in the UK? Yeah. Well, the, there wasn't much difference really in flying because it's very similar sort of countryside, green fields, stuff. A bit different from flying, say in the Middle East, but uh, Germany was Germany was a perfectly good place to fly. Um, yeah, I enjoyed it there, good. So what were the strengths and weaknesses of the Hunter? The strengths and weaknesses of the Hunter? Well, of course it was developed over the years, so the early weaknesses, the difficulties like not being able to fire the guns, that, that, was, that was fixed and that was okay. The air, the air brake on the Hunter was not very good. Where's the air brake on the aircraft? Uh, is it well, it's on the back. You have to go underneath. Yeah. No, it's a sort of like a big clamshell thing. Underneath, right. Out. Hydraulic, and yeah. it's operated by a little switch on the, on the, um, on the stick. <laughs> the other thing was, when the Hunter was first built, because it didn't have uh, an air brake, they used to use the flaps. Okay. So you could actually use the flaps to slow you down. The unfortunate thing about that was, if you were flying in excess of 0.9 mark, which you did quite often, and you put the flaps down, you completely lost elevator control and the airplane just came straight down. Like really? Wow. If you didn't lift the flaps, you went straight into the ground. So you had to lift the flaps before you could pull out of the dive. So we used flaps quite often in combat, but we had to watch the speed very carefully because nothing much happened up to about 0.9. And then suddenly the stick just 
wouldn't work anymore. Wow. It's, it's a bit frightening, a bit, a bit of a worry. So that, that was one of the problems. The early hunters, <coughs> excuse me, the, the early hunters didn't have very much fuel, and then later on they started hanging tanks underneath. Yeah. This one doesn't have any tanks. In fact, this one doesn't even have any pylons to hang them on. Very slick, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, so. The other problem was, and it's something that really did give me a problem uh, when I was at Chibna, was it didn't have this leading edge. Can you, I don't know if you can show that on the film. I'll get on a the, picture, on yeah. the leading edge of the, of, the, um, of the wing there, you can see a bit sticking out. It's an extension. Well, the thing was, before they put that extension on, the Mark I did not have the extension, and neither did the Mark IVs when I first went to Germany. If you pull the aircraft in a very tight turn, eventually you would reach a point where it would start juddering at the beginning of the stall. <laughs> yeah. And that's and you took it to that point because that was your maximum rate of turn when you're trying to get behind somebody or when you're trying to get somebody off your tail. That's what you'd have to do. Maximum performance. And you'd sometimes lower the nose, you'd be at full power and you'd go down into descending spiral, pulling till you could just feel this little tremble on the stick. Now of course you didn't always get that right and if you pulled a little bit too hard in the early marks of Hunter that suddenly all hell would break loose because the aircraft would stall and it would pitch up violently like that because what was happening was that as the wingtips were stalling the center of pressure of the lift on the airplane moving forward and lifted the nose of the airplane up very quickly so you're already two nose up for right. the aircraft yeah. to fly you know, on the edge of the stall and suddenly it pitched up like that and the speed just went to nothing <laughs> and, and the other problem was the, the engine, the early Mark uh, Rolls-Royce Avon that we had the early Mark was a 100 series engine and the 100 series engine was prone to compressor stall so if you went, you did pitch it up the engine would stop. Right. So you've got all kinds of problems all happening like that in a split second. And in fact, um, now shall I tell you this little thing about what happened? Go okay. for it, okay. On about my third or fourth trip, I'd been in the bar the night before with one of the young flying officers who was uh, one of our instructors. And he was an aggressive sort of guy. And he said to me, yeah, you're a bit of a wimp, you know, you need to get up there and do some serious turning and you know so tomorrow when you do your fourth trip in the hunter when you go up to 40,000 feet pull it round the corner and really get it going full power get it going as fast as you can and then really rip it round the corner see how much G you can pull he'd had too much to drink yeah. of course <laughs> and, and so being very young and naive I, I always did what I was told and so I thought well, okay so the next day I took off from Chivner and climbed up to 40,000 feet wound it up to about 0.92 something like that put it on its side and pulled it hard round the corner Ooh. three things happened all at once the first thing that happened was it pitched up and I got about Oh, it's five or six G suddenly. That's not that's not, it's not a horrendous amount, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's enough to get it's enough to get your attention. <laughs> the aircraft pitched up violently like that, started juddering, and the engine stopped. 
the engine surged and then the aircraft went into a spin. Ooh. Now, spinning was banned in the Hunter uh, because it had a problem with if you had any aileron at all, these big ailerons we were talking about earlier on, if you had any aileron towards the outside of the spin, that's if you're going left, you had right aileron on, yes. the aircraft would not recover. No matter what you did, it would not recover from the spin. And you only needed that much aileron because they were so sensitive. Yeah. They moved so quickly. So eventually, in fact, they put a little white mark on the stick and a white mark on the control on the con, on the on the control panel, so that when if you got into a spin, you you push the stick forward, which is part of the recovery from the spin. You push the stick forward with the ailerons neutral, and you would get out of the spin. Well, we didn't have that then. We didn't know that. Then. You didn't know that, yeah, of course. I mean, I got all this information later from a. Uh, the chief test pilot at Hawkers, a chap called Bill Bedford, lovely man, and he, ex and, he ex and I told him about this problem I had at Chibner, and he explained to me what I'd done right to get out of it, because what I actually did was it was spinning down, and um, and I put the controls in a position where they would make it do what it was doing. That is to say, left aileron because you're spinning to the left. Uh, left rudder, yawing to the left, throttle closed, and stick forward, and brought this all back to the centre, and it just stopped. It just stopped. It worked. <laughs> it worked. And so I then came came back in a bit of a state, and. Uh, got back to Chivner and landed and crept into the crew room and had a cup of coffee. Uh, have a good flight? Yes, no problem at all, no, 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 no anything go wrong at all? No, no. Yeah, you couldn't admit no. that, could you? <laughs> I wasn't going to tell anybody what happened because inevitably I'd have been given a stiffening, you know, and probably fined 10 shillings <laughs> or something like that. Anyway, um, I, I didn't, it was a bigger fright and unfortunately it did affect my confidence in the aeroplane. Right. So when I went on to a squadron later, I wouldn't go around the corners as quickly as I might. And so people doing combat maneuvering would always be able to get behind me and shoot me down. Mm -hmm. and, and so I wasn't very good. Mm. So eventually I got myself together and put that right but it was it did affect me for quite a long time and it just shows you know if you're a young instructor and you're talking to a young student mm -hmm. you don't tell him to do stupid things because he's probably going to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. when I was an instructor later on I learned that that was a lesson I learned you, you know you yeah. don't say stupid things to your yeah. students because they'll probably do it 